Welcome to another episode of the Top Lines and Tales podcast, as we reach the end, for now anyway, of our History of Native Livestock in the UK series. Uh, once again, we'd like to thank our sponsors, Harbro, for their kind support. They are, of course, leading manufacturers of quality livestock nutrition. The blue-faced Leicester sheep, easily distinguished by its blue colour and long neck and Roman nose, hails back to the original Leicester founded by Robert Bakewell at Dishley Grange in the mid-1700s. And uh, this week we have to say happy birthday to the breed uh, for which a society was formed uh, 60 years ago this year in 1962. And uh, my two guests this week are both well associated with that society. James Herdman from Northumberland, who I think is uh, is 100-year centenary this year in the farm. Welcome, James. And Derek Hall from Lilyburn Pennycook in Midlothian. Hi. And uh, chaps, the breed has changed considerably from those long-wooled Leicesters, which uh, have all but pretty much died out now. But the two main variants from those days would be, of course, the Laborda Leicester and the Blueface Leicester. And both, it has to be said, developed mainly in that area around northern England and the Scottish borders where you, you chaps are. And I suppose... Going back to the mid-18th century, that would have been one of the most prolific areas for sheep in the UK in those borders. I think I think the geography and the, the type of land that there is in that area, it, it lends itself very well to sheep production. Um, you know, right, a stratified system really from the top of the hills right down to the lowlands as well. Sure, and some diverse land, of course, it would be, as you said, with the hills there and, and some good lowland and... You know, you get further east, of course, there's some damn good arable land there as well. And the breed, of course, does go back a lot earlier than 1962, obviously. And and, uh, there would be some very smart men developing the genetics as far back as the late 1800s, I think. And uh, at the time, the Border Leicester would have gained in popularity by introducing the Chiviot into their mix. But it would possibly be the the hybrid of these crossed again to the Teeswater ram, uh, which hails from south of the border there and um, in the Dales, that uh, arrived eventually with what we call the, the Hexham Leicester, which which went on to become the the blue-headed Leicester, as it's better better known now. Yeah, I think that was the case. That basically they wanted to have something a bit shorter wool uh, to put on to the Scotch black faces, which Paul had quite a lot of wool at that time, mm-hmm. and the shorter wool sheep evolved for that purpose in the Hexham area really and became known as the Hexham Leicester. The big point was that, that by this concentrated sort of small area the, the breed became very inbred and effectively fixed its genetic footprint uh, which has given it a tremendous benefit in the longer term because it puts hybrid figure into the F1 cross. We'll go in and look at that hybrid figure in a minute or two, but uh, I hear what you're saying. And of course, the short wool breed, like the Leicester going on to some of those longer wool, certainly the blackies that we looked at last week with uh, wool down to the ground. And James, I believe your family have been involved in the breed and when, of course, they were the Hexham Leicester and showed sheep as far back as 1914. Is that right? Yeah, well, we do have a photograph within the family um, of a, a seal and ram, which was obviously... I don't know if he if he won the show or whether he was the top price at the sale or whatever. Um, and that it is dated nineteen fourteen, and um, you know the the flock that we're still working with today has you know it's all stemmed down from from that time period. You know, um, so we've never bought any females in 
since then, so it still derives from those original ones wow. from way back then. Wow, over yeah. over a hundred years, it'd be great if you could find that photograph and furnish us with that for our, yes, for our uh, Facebook page. Yeah, uh, able to try and find it if I can. Yeah. You obviously, haven't got your hand on it right now, but would the sheep be very different back there in 1914 compared to what we see now? Um, I think if to see the photograph and um, if you said to someone, "What breed of sheep is that?" I think. You know, the majority of people would say it's a blue-faced Leicester from the early days, to be okay. fair. Okay. Yeah. So we're saying yeah. 100 years, 100 and odd years uh, without much change there. And if we just move on, the early sales would have been at Lazenby, of course, it's in the North Pennines up there between Penrith and Carlisle. And I've been to Lazenby, it'd be a lovely little village, but there's not a lot there. Why Why across that side? Why Why Lazenby? Was that uh, was there any reason? I think as time progressed, you know, in the Hexham, Hexham area where it had its, its strong foothold, you know, people would start to use the Hexham Lesters on Swaledales and what have you, further across the Alston Moors there and into Cumbria. And I think that would that would be an evolution that the, the sale for Leicester Rams would start and take place at Lazenby. And certainly late 80s and into the 90s, you know, mm-hmm. Lazenby was a very, very strong sale, for, um, especially the Ram Lamb sale. Um, you know, they've got huge numbers there. It certainly was. Um, it was a hotbed, of course. And, yeah. uh, and, and the other sale, of course, would be Kelso. And uh, James, I believe, again, right. again going back there, I think your your family said they topped that sale, and we can't quite remember exactly when it was that the Blue Leicesters came into Kelso. But, of course, the sale's been going since the oh, late 1800s, I think. And, the, the, and, the, and yes. the, the Blue Leicester would have been second fiddle to the border Leicester back then. That's right, yeah. But um it was, you know, the Border Leicesters certainly had the had the lion's share of the numbers um on the Leicester front. But uh, you know, Blueface Leicesters, you know, the popularity grew and grew. Um, you know, nineteen sixty three I think would be the first society sale of Leicesters, but you know, they had been there uh, for a considerable time before that. In in nineteen sixty five, uh, the Lucker Hall flock from Northumberland he had a consignment of 100 blue-faced Leicester Shields at Kelso, which would be wow. that would be quite a sight to see, 100 off one consigner. Wouldn't it? Just, yeah, that, yeah. And, and that would be, especially early days back then, would they be a fairly, been a fairly uniformed affair even back then, 100 sheep much the same? I would imagine so, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm not old enough to remember that. No, of course not. But um, it, would be, um, it would be quite a sight to see, I would imagine. I mean, even... You know, I don't know if there's ever been a consignment of 100 rams of any breed at Kelso, to be honest. There, there has in the Charolais, I believe, uh, uh, had that achievement maybe later on, but one person putting a, putting 100 tops in there, but yeah. a hell of a sight for, for anybody. And, and other sales, of course, would be Hexham, would be the main sale, obviously being the, the, the Hexham Leicester as it was, and that would be a, a two-day sale, I think, that one, maybe lambs and Sherlands? They always had a, a sale day for Sherlands, um, and then it was probably about a fortnight later they had a sale for Ram Lamb. So, you know, there was, there was two two considerable size sales two, there. Two separate yeah. sales rather than, than, than yes, two back, uh-huh. back to back. Uh, and the one that I think everybody talks about, of course, is the one in Hawes. And I think that, although that isn't a two-day sale, I think one or two people think it might be a two-day sale because it takes, you a day, <laughs> takes a day to get over it. <laughs> Yeah, well, it starts one day and it's usually the following day by the time it finishes. Yeah, you know, it yeah. can be it can be half past one the following morning. <laughs> I always remember at a, at a council meeting, someone suggested it should be made into a two-day sale, and someone shouted up from the back and said it already is. <laughs> you know, Derek will agree with this. The wholesale it has a unique atmosphere of its own, really. And once it gets dark at night and what have you, just the 
the whole atmosphere and uh, the trade just seems to build and build. And, you know, you quite often ask some of the consigners what time they would like to be sold in the sale. And they quite often say nine o'clock at night. <laughs> when everybody's had a dram, maybe, and get away a little bit, loosen, loosen the bits a bit. <laughs> well, po- possibly, yes. But, I mean, you know, Derek's Derek sold at uh, Halls before then, what have you. I mean, you know, you'll be able to enlighten on that side as well. Yeah, well, the best price I got ever was quarter to twelve at night. So, <laughs> I've been in the market since uh, six o'clock in the morning. <laughs> yeah. that is, that's an endurance Long endurance day. test, that one, isn't it? Yes, uh, but people, people, you know, it works, and um, you know, there's no reason to change it. Really, is there? No. When yeah. something when something uh, not broken, why try and fix it? Sure. Sure. And another sale I think you you mentioned to me, uh, James, would be a sale in Scotch Gap and, and a man called Taz Thompson, who was some character by yeah. all accounts. Tell us a bit about him. Well, Tommy Thompson, I think he would be quite instrumental in how the breed, you know, got spread out around the UK, really. I mean, I can remember as a very young boy, sort of early to mid-1970s, as the, as the mule new lambs trade was starting to get a hold and grow and I can remember the Crookshanks of Laidla Steel and the McGregor's Valenfold coming down to Scotts Gap with mule ewe lambs because prior to that point you know a lot of people up on Scotch side were using border lesters and producing the graces but they they were producing mule lambs and you know they brought them down to the sale at Scotts Gap to market them and then as you know as years went on the blue face lesters became more and more popular and Tommy Thompson was selling Blueface Leicester Tups at Kelso on behalf of consigners. And I think it was 1979 was the first year that a second ring of Blueface Leicesters was implemented due to the number of entries. Mm-hmm. It would be that from that point forward that the Greyface would disappear and the Scotch Mule would get a real hold okay. in Scotland. But also at the same time, Tommy saw the opportunity and there was a lot of Welshmen coming up to the Hexham area to buy Blueface Leicester Tubs mm-hmm, to, mm-hmm. to use on the Beulers and what have you. And um, he saw there was an opportunity there to start and market Blueface Leicester Tubs for people at the Bill Wells Ram sale. Okay. So, he, you know, he took... And then after after he retired, I'm not quite sure when he retired, 1980s sometime, um, Laurie and Simon would sort of take over his consignors at uh, Kelso and uh, Michael Walton and subsequently Andrew and Jack Walton uh, have they took over his consignors and have grown the job down at Billswell since. Mm-hmm. Michael, of course, is a well-known auctioneer and we'll be looking at the auctioneers in a week or two's time, but yeah, well-known auctioneer and, and, uh, and, and a, a great face in, in amongst the Suffolk and the, the Brewlester breed. And if, if we move on, of course, we're going to mention the cross because that's probably the whole gist of this this podcast, or we'll go on to that anyway. It's a, but the three-quarter bread, originally the sheep would be going back in the 1850s, I suppose, when that would be a, a border lester on a Scottish half-bread. But the first cross you wouldn't really come into, into favour in, in the UK until after the Second World War. But of course, that's what we just said, it gave a massive rise to the popularity of the blue-faced lester producing this mule, Derek. The uniqueness of the genetics of Bluetooth Flesters that gives it this tremendous boost in hybrid vigour. Really, there's no other breeds are able to put as much hybrid vigour into a cross than the Blueface Lester, and that feeds down to your milkiness, your prolificacy, your longevity, your disease resistance, all the things that you want in a commercial you. And it 
we've known about it for a long time, but it's not only recently that the science has come out that's sort of pointed the way as to why this is the case, and it all fits in with the line reading way in the early days uh, that fixed it totally different to any other breed. Yeah. It certainly has made the you know, the mule of any type the number one sort of cross for, for commercial use in the UK, really. We'll look at the at the makeup of the mules in a second because I think it's an interesting one. But as you said, it would be the the bursters of mule that would push the the blue to the fore, and, and it became the the mainstay of the industries uh, in the British Isles. And just to to clarify for me before we get on to the other types of mule, that the blue face on a Swaledale that would be a northern mule, more your part of the world, uh, James. And then the the Scotch mule, yes. Scotch mule would be on a blackie. Is that right? That's yes. right. There's a north of England mule is what. Uh, what they're known as on the about the Swaledale. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can you can use a blue faced Leicester on any type of female, and you get a very very well, a, basically a magical mule. You know, that's a, a, a top notch commercial animal. Yeah. You know, with great maternal traits, and you know, well, I mean, I've got to admit, I've I've heard of them used on a lot of different breeds of ewes, but until listening to your Suffolk podcast with uh, Michael Weaver. Um, that was the first time I'd heard that uh, Blueface Lester's used on Suffolk's, and that that's a foundation of his commercial flock. Mm, it'd, be, it'd be big sheep, wouldn't they? Those would be. In. Yeah. Just, just again, just, clar- just clarify this because there's also a grey face, but the grey face would be a, a border Lester on a blackie. Is that right? Another variant? Would I, would I be? Yes. And we say. And, I mean, there is still a few of them in Aberdeenshire. There's, there's still a few get sold, but largely they're dying out, really. Mm-hmm. In favour of the mule, okay, of all sorts, mm-hmm. and folks from around the country would, uh, my father included, would come, flock to horse and Hexham to buy these uh, mules in the seventies, as you said. In our case, down in in the Midlands, said we'd be replacing the the crossbred clun, which wasn't exactly a, a great mother, and uh, although I probably upset all of Wales by saying that, and uh, all of a sudden our lambing percentage went up by twenty, thirty percent, and the lamb's weights improved dramatically. In fact, yeah, it's a remarkable creature, isn't it? Uh, the mule, as both of you all know. And as an arable farmer, you know, he would judge his farm on the yield per acre, you know, of what he, what he produces grain-wise. You know, I don't think there's any, any other breed of sheep, you know, that can produce as many kilos of lamb per acre as what the mule does. And, you know, that, that applies to all types of mules, whether it be the TV mule, the Scotch mule, North of England mule, Welsh mule. You know, all of them, really. Quite rightly, it is. It's all about profit, isn't it? And uh, if we go back to the blue face, they themselves had been developed by the certain amount of inbreeding, as you said, uh, Derek, and studies being done, and one by uh, Donna Berry in Ireland, and I've been in touch with him, and uh, that shows just how extreme, how unique almost their genes really are. You, you had a look at this study yourself. It's quite remarkable, isn't it, uh, Derek? It really shows that most of the, the breeds in the UK have genetically fairly similar with the exception of border lesters and blueface lesters. Uh, and the bigger the, the difference between the two parents, the bigger the hybrid figure sure. will be. And we don't know for, for certain what the percentage is, but added all together in terms of prolificacy, milking ability, all these things, Donna Berry estimates it could be as high as a 20% boost in performance, mm-hmm. overall performance terms. Mm-hmm. And it, it just underlines that's probably the reason why the mill is so successful, because it has this extra boost, really. It's, sure. it's, 
for those interested in, in in line reading we should call it to be politically correct if you i'll post the graph later if you do look at that you can see just how far away the the blue is from all the other breeds that sort of stuck up in one yeah. corner so much so much in, in front of the rest and and just look at the development of the breed and i know we're not sort of into naming naming flocks and things here but uh, who would be responsible for some of that that work on the blue face there are a few names that stand out i certainly know that a name uh, joe rain joe used to bring um uh, blue lesters down into our part of the world there and uh, he'd be one of the main main men in the job would he i think joe was a great ambassador for the breed uh, uh, in the early days probably forming the society and the, the old parts what really was probably the flock of the time around about when the society was formed mm-hmm. uh, they used to sell three consecutive days they would sell at Hexham they would sell at Lisenburg they would sell at Carmel it wouldn't be unknown for them to top each sale yeah. I think I think it's probably probably fair to say that you know through a period of time there there'll be probably very few flocks within the country which didn't have Old Park's blood used through them really mm-hmm. and even even nowadays you know your uh, son david he's still very much to the fore in the you know he's a trustee of the association and everything and um he's still very much involved within the breed certainly a great name a name that i remember and my my father certainly would uh would buy his, his blues from him and he'd bring them he'd ship them down to us and um and it isn't just with the northern hill use that uh, that we mentioned that the cross worked in harmony but also all around the country and which is what you're alluding to we we eventually in our part of the world switched to the welsh mule which uh, is is crossed with a beulah ewe which is a smaller hardier smaller ewe anyway than, than the, the, the sheep you guys have up there and partly for us that was convenience for our location but partly because they were a smaller sheep and they suited our, our stocking rates but it does a job on on everything doesn't it the derbyshire sheep we see see coming the, the dale sheep we see it going across the there's an ex-mule mule now as well and you mentioned the suffolk i mean they, they, there's a variety of mules and all that all hold the, the, the blue as its father isn't it there is actually even clun mules now is there? Uh, going back to you know, the the welsh mules they have two varieties where some are out of the Beulah and some are out of the Welsh Mountain type. You maybe an improved Welsh Mountain. Uh, so they're, they're sort of white face, more akin to a Chivit mule, mm-hmm. but very, very successful down in that part of the world. We used to, I used to lamb a thousand hogs every year at Welsh, at Welsh mules, the first time lambers. It was uh, it was quite a task for a young boy, but uh, they generally uh, they generally could look after the lambs once you got them kind of acclimatised to it. Mm-hmm. And generally, the breed, both in its pure and cross format, are easier kept. In fact, the blue was once denoted as a as a woman's breed, which will get the phones ringing immediately nowadays. But is that, <laughs> is that because the the temperament would that be, uh, James? Well, they're, they're very maternal, um, and you know, they're, they're a good sheep to work with. To be honest, um, you know, there are some people who have always said, you know, they don't like to live very well, but that's totally untrue i would say i think it all depends on how you're going to look after them at the end of the day mm. um, i can always remember a shearing contractor telling me we, we could never understand why this particular buyer of blueface restaurants bought so many every year and the shearing contractor told me when he went to shear them um the, the, the ram harnesses were still on them from the previous toughen season and they used to say to him, do you want me to put them back on once I've sheared the sheep? You know, and I think, you know, if you look after them, they'll look after you. Work the sheep the whole year round. They certainly did have a bit of a reputation in the early days, maybe because a little bit of, of too much inbreeding for being it being not quite so hardy. But uh, that's all changed now, I'm sure. No, there's, there's a lot of rams, you know, which 
live to live and work till six, seven here nowadays. Um, you know, we, we've had several of those, and um, you know, they've done really well. And and the breed, of course, it would have increased in size, I'm sure, from when your 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 family were showing them back in the in the 1920s. But uh, the breed would have increased in size to possibly maybe the biggest breed in the UK now, where they be in height anyway. And for our listener, what sort of height are we looking at? What sort of weight are we looking at? Mature rams. Mature rams could be, I would think, 140 kilos mm. height. If you held their head up, you must be almost touching four feet, some of the tallest mm-hmm. ones, if they're to the top of their head, would you say? Yes, I, I would agree with that. Um, I think I think it sales as well, the, the presentation of sheep, but sheep are definitely a lot bigger nowadays. Mm. You know, there's, and I would I would say probably in the current time, there's a bigger percentage of sold as ram lambs nowadays rather than shearling rams, and there are really some you know some big lambs out there which are sold. But but again, they'll only grow to their genetic potential, won't they? Yeah. You know they won't. Um, and I think as well, you know, a lot of shearlings which are sold, that a lot of them are what I would term progeny tested. They've been tried as ram lambs and um, you can recommend how they're going to breed to potential purchasers and you know there's not many other breeds can say that they're selling progeny tested feel and rams mm-hmm. you know in the, in the second year of their life sure Sure, nothing like it if you can buy a sheep that's proven then you're halfway there aren't you and that's right. looking back to the times of course we had the sad time at the turn of this millennium with a, with a foot and mouth and that would have hit the breed very hard I think and, and, and then we've had scrapey genotyping and various things but I mean the foot and mouth would have been the one that, that would have done a, done a lot of damage to the, the genetics I guess it did yes there would, there would be a lot of long established flocks were taken out with foot and mouth um, not all of them would get started again but you know some would be very fortunate and be able to locate bloodlines that people had bought from them and try and buy some of those bloodlines back to get established again and you know some people within a very short time got back to where they had been mm-hmm. prior to foot and mouth mm-hmm. and the genotyping the scrapey genotyping did that have a hit there might be probably not so much in the commercial world as it did in the pedigree world when everybody's looking to try and breed that out well i know we one notable sire that we had that had quite a big impact in the breed was a, a, a three and I always felt that he maybe didn't, we didn't sell as, as much or high prices off him as we mm. would have been other times. So there was this element of one, two, threes, mm. which, yeah, and then that may return if you have to go to export sheep to Ireland. We'll have to get them into ones. Yeah, backfired a little bit now, but it, it it was a tough time, wasn't it? Where I know in a lot of breeds the baby went out with the bathwater when they're killing they're killing everything that wasn't a one, and then they're all breeding for ones that maybe weren't good enough sheep. So it takes a while to sit and analyse this from from a distance and breed it out slowly. And I, I assume everything's back up, as you said. Now for export, they were all trying to get get the ones. I assume there's plenty of ones about now. It's probably something we've not done a lot of in the recent times up until. The last couple of years, it's rekindled its enthusiasm for well, the scrappy genotyping. Going to blame a bit of that on the Brexit as well. Maybe a good thing or a bad thing. Where I yes. I sit here in in um, in southwest France, and I'm trying to get sheep over at the moment, and uh, we've got to get everything genotyped. And of course, a lot of these breeds going back the way they've got no records whatsoever. Anyway, let's move away from that one. Going back to 
when we were buying mules anyway, it would be the, the darker-faced ones that were more sought after, in, in the Welsh case anyway, because it would distinguish them from the, in, again, in our case, from the white Welsh hillew, which wasn't as, as, as big an animal, I suppose, as the beulah would be. And, and so we, the darker-faced ones used to make a, you know, 10 or 15% uh, more money. And I think that would be the same to be said in, in the mule as well, certainly originally. Yes, and at the end of the day, I think you're, you're absolutely correct. The darker ones are distinguished, they are a mule. There is no doubt about it. And, you know, there's lots of competitors who would love to have their sheep called mule type, but uh, darker ones, there's nothing can look like a darker mule. It's, it's just known as a mule, and everybody goes for that. And guessing, I suppose, this is looking for those darker faces, looking then for a, a blue Leicester sire with darker colours to put that into there, and that maybe gave rise to Tup's developed purely for that purpose, for the, for the crossing type Tup. Yes, I think, I think that's how the whole thing evolved, really. Um, you know, the, t- the two types within the breed, they've all got an end market uh, for what they're producing, and, you know, the people who are using the crossing type on horned sheep you know, it's it's leaving the darker faces, uh, which, as you've already said, you know, the, the markup in price on them, on that particular type. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, totally understand why for production of the Cheviot Mule, you know, which is basically taken over from the half-pred big style, mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, they're producing a white face sheep, but they're equally doing just as good a job. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think both of you bred the traditional type blues before sort of moving on to the crossing side of it. And Derek, um, going back the way a few decades, I think you won the Highland Show with a top first Jasper in, in 1995. But I think that that was probably the time that we we felt that mules weren't good enough. And as James said, you know, a lot, particularly selling at Kelso, we are purging the test in the tops and mm-hmm. You know, we have to be really customer focused, and so at that time we felt, you know, we need to get our meals better because that's going to help the Bluefish Leicester trade, and that was why we we made the switch. And we don't regret it, as James said, that you know, if people are being cheated meals, then they look for a different type of Bluefish Leicester, uh, equally successful. But probably, I think, as James said, we're probably one of the most customer focused breeds. There is, because I don't know of any other breed that, that you can turn up and they'll, they'll say, yes, that'll be the good mules, that'll not be the good mules. And I think, that, honestly, the, the breeders is, is tremendous. You know, people are, are fairly honest about how they're bred, good or bad. And because the end of the day, we want people to come back. And so if you, you tell them what it's going to do and it does it, then they're going to be satisfied. That's great, great marketing, isn't it? When the repeat business yeah. comes back, and James yourself, you you bred traditional types too, but not for quite a long while. But we need to make sure we give that uh, that side of the breeder mention. And there's still two to the four, aren't there? The traditional side and and some great enthusiasts amongst them. There would there be any, any numbers? So do many people breed both of them? I suppose that's uh, that's something I'd ask. Um, I, I can think of, um, I think the Alwinton flock. They still have two flocks within their farm and enterprise. Um, but I can't think of many others nowadays that have both types. Mm-hmm. Um, Mervyn Roberts would be the only other one, I think. Oh, yes, from Wales, uh-huh. yes. Okay. Uh-huh. okay. Um, 
to our listener, of course, you are the Blue Leicester All Under One Society, and, and, and the close knit outfit that you are. And I need to mention Fiona Sloan, who sent me quite a little bit of information. Now Fletcher, of course, she gave me. A, a, she did a lot of promotion work on the breed, and now you've got uh, Helen Carr on the role. But uh, you, you've, you, have, you haven't had many many changes of staff at the top since in the last sixty years, have you? Well, since the society was formed in 1963, Helen is only our sixth secretary. Right. So we must be a pretty decent bunch of members to work with, I would say, um, you know, because we certainly haven't had a, a big turnover of secretaries, that's for sure. <laughs> I won't mention that some of the cattle breeds moving, swi- <laughs> moving swiftly on. And, and there would be sales now, of course, right across the country, weren't there? Most of the breeding tops would be lambs, as you said. Uh, um, but yeah, there's, there's society sales down in, in, the, in the south and in Wales and various things. They don't all have to traipse up to, to Scotland and North England to buy them these days, do they? Even Southern Ireland now has a sale, and there's numerous sales in Northern Ireland. There's a club down in Devon. Uh, they have a sale at Tavistock. So it is the length and breadth of the UK. And uh, as I've said earlier, it's really there to, to suit all the different types of sheep. Sure. You know, because the blues get used in so many different types and geographically different types that they have a sale in the locality. I commentated this year at the Royal Highland show on on the on the classes. Rodney Blackhall was made a tremendous job of judging there, and I think uh, there was one or two main people, Low Arkland and, and McClymont at Kirkland, picking up the tickets between them. But uh, there, there's uh, there, there's a lot of people at the top of the breed, far too many to mention in that trad side, isn't it? To uh, go through them all without uh, upsetting anybody, but they're very the traditional ones are very enthusiastic about that side of the breed, aren't they? I think those types are you know full of enthusiastic members and supporters and. You know, you go to think back to the Highland show, you know, in recent years there, there's a huge crowd around the judging ring of, of both types, mm-hmm. you know, and um, the members of both types, they mix and socialise with each other just as well as anyone, really. The breed is actually, since the, the two sections are getting shown in different classes, the breed is more unified mm-hmm. because... The breeders, you know, the, the best traditional blues are coming to the top and the best crossing ones are coming to the top, whereas in the past where the breeds where they were mixed, there was a lot of animosity about, you know, who was judging and whatnot. So splitting the sections has been one of the best things that's happened. I was going to mention that because, you know, both of you will be judges, of course, and just when what it was the, the split in the two breeds, because you couldn't, I mean, it's... Very difficult, as we've talked in other other breeds on these podcasts. It's very difficult to judge two or three different types of sheep in the same ring with one judge who will who will favour one side. So when did they split those? When did they split the, the judging away from each other? It's probably been within the last ten years or so. I would say really that um, you know a lot of the sales they they evolved themselves. You know that um, you know horses. It's all crossing type sheep. Uh, the, the Carlisle sale, they, they've actually, in recent years, split the two rings okay. so that they've got one ring going at the same time with traditional type and the other ring with crossing type. Uh-huh. And, and again, it, wor- it works very well. There's very good prices with uh, with both types of feet. Mm-hmm. One of the slogans that was that is used on the society stand at various shows and sheep events is diversity is our strength. And I think, you know, it's only four words, but it's it's very very true. True. Okay. Yeah, that's the diversity. Of course, mm-hmm. is exactly where you are with two different uh, different types, and uh, and we mentioned the sales, and of course, there's female sales now as well. Some of the 
uh, the females are in demand, obviously, and some big prices we're seeing recently. It's uh, January, I think, you're in lamb sale, but uh, that's that's going a bomb, isn't it? It is, yeah. And again, in recent years, that's that's another aspect that's taken off within the breed that uh, female sales of um, you know the flying nowadays, and you know people target consignments of sheep towards those female sales on an annual basis nowadays. Something that crops up in again regularly when, when we chat about these things, of course, is the, is the the flushing or the element of just be able to spread the genes wider. Would some people be targeting those sales, paying a big price for one or two, and then using flushing to to spread those genes evenly? Is, 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 is a lot of that being done now in the breed? There's a fair bit of embryo transfer done, I think. We reckon about 10% of the lambs born are embryo transfer. Okay. So there's a fair bit of that getting done, particularly in some of the bigger flocks. So larger number of lambs on the ground. They might not have the most glucose left they use, but they have the most glucose left of lambs getting registered. 10% would certainly be lower than the Texel breed. <coughs> <laughs> <laughs> and, and Derek, you've worked quite closely with the, with the mule group. I think the Scotch mule breed was within the society, perhaps? So I suppose the background to that was that we felt that the best way to promote glucose left is to promote mules. Mm-hmm. So I'm chairman of the mule group, which is a group that have come together from all the, well, North England mules, Highland mules, Scotch mules, uh, and Welsh mules, and the TV mules farmer association, they'll come in as well. And what we're doing is we're, we're trying to promote the just the message about the mules, uh, because largely the hybrid vigor story has been, trying, well, it's old news, and mm-hmm. I think the work that Donna Berry did gave us fresh impetus that this is a story that's worth revisiting and so that's really what we've tried to push hard to the mule group. Okay and going going on on to the crossing type and of course for those aren't aware they tend to have a a darker patchier face which of course signifies those darker mules and uh, I've got to ask this because my listener will ask me was something being bred back into those just to try and achieve that bit more darkness is there a snitch or something else coming in there or is it just natural natural selection? I think it would be natural selection I think you know, years ago there would be a breeder that would, again, he would come back to the progeny test and he would use a ram and really like the dark-faced mules at left and he would use it over his own use and, you know, there would be more and more colour appear in them and for a while a lot of breeders would, you know, they were trying to buy the colour as much as possible. Uh-huh. Um, but fashions, fashions within a breed change and evolve all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but I think, you know, from outsiders... Uh, the difference in the types within the Leicester breed is it's distinguished by the colour um, and it, it's it's easier to see by people. I mean, just to use the Texels as, a, as an example, um, you know, the Ram Lamb market at the Lanark sales and what have you, you know, it, it's it's catering for a different market to what the commercial Sheerlands are at Kelso True. in the Texel breed, you know, so it's, it's, it's there and it's present in in every breed really the different different types and that but i think it's it's a lot more easily distinguished in the leicesters because of the because of the involvement of the color would, would i be right in thinking the crossing breed um, sheep would be a bit bigger or is that just a myth no. there was a long road project done away back in uh, 1997 with it. they actually did look at mature size and whatnot and, and confirmation and whatnot and one of the findings strangely was that the the ones the brown faced mules at that time were sort of bigger and square, mm-hmm. uh, and you know I think it, it was probably a surprise. There's maybe not the difference now, but at that time in '97, Aberystwyth 
did a lot of work in it, and then I think it did sort of indicate that there was a slight difference, but that might have changed now. Certainly, Dewey, Dewey Jones will be involved in that, and they did do a lot of work there, aren't in, in, yes. in a lot of breeds. And, and, and looking at the, um, the crossing breed, we see quite a few serious names, in, what I would call serious names, in amongst the blackie breeders, the likes of Midlock, Allenfold that you mentioned, Nunsklook, these sort of guys, and the, they're, they're majoring very much in, in the, the crossing side of it now, and the prices are starting to get very serious, aren't they? And uh, you know, there's a few tops now notching up the £20,000, £30,000, uh, Mark James. Yes, um, well, at Hall's sale last, last September there, uh, the breed record was broken twice within the same sale, um, prior to that, it had been 37,000 for a midlock ram lamb uh, from about three or four years ago. And uh, they they broke the record at 40,000. But then later in the sale, um, the Riddens flock run by the Porter family, they, they smashed that uh, and sold the one at 65,000. Mm-hmm. I think that's something nowadays as well, probably on the back of AI and flushing that, you know, years ago, people... People bought their own stock ram outright, but nowadays, with the influence of AI and flushing, um, syndicates get together to buy these better rams, and you know that's driven the, the top end of the prices with them. If you get two or three syndicates going on the same sheep, it can make them a lot dearer. Certainly, something was discussed last week in, in the Blackie breed, and as I said, nobody goes there to try and spend a lot of money, but sometimes you've got to get your guys together to, to get what you want. And, and as I said, I, I commentated on the sheep at the Royal Highland Showcase this year, and in, in the crossing ring there was a, a lamb from Andrew McQuiston that literally took my eye as soon as it came in the ring, a real show beast, I think, and I think she went on to win the interbreed. They're, they're a striking, they're an eye-catching breed, aren't they, the, these crosses? It was, it was a first-class animal, really, and Andrew's always had a lot of good Flashing females has got a really good line, and I think the good thing of that is is that it shows that blueface lifters are a serious contender in the sheep industry now. I think ten years ago you wouldn't have expected a blueface lifter to be competing in an interbreed or having a chance of winning an interbreed, and now it's fairly common. And partly because of the size and scale that you talked about, uh, you know, a big lamb or something is a, is quite a bit impressive animal when it's. Standing in, a, in an interview drink. She was winning it by a country mile, if you ask me, but I wasn't the judge, but I think he agreed, yeah. agreed with me on that one. And and we mentioned Wales earlier on, and a name I will mention, we used to buy our tups from is uh, Richard Thomas at the townhouse, and uh, we, well, we buy tups off his father, of course, going back the way, and a great family, a great stalwart for the breed down there, and I think uh, there's a bit of uh, blood in, in your flock, uh, Derek, isn't there, with a, with a B4 ram? Yeah, we, we, we used B4 for quite a number of years, very successful, and Actually, I was speaking to Alan White, who we shared the tip with, and uh, he said he had four lambs born to be four this time again. Okay. So that's quite old semen. So he was certainly a first-class animal. It was just absolutely solid. Uh-huh. And he had a really great impact in the flock. I know we can't mention all the sheep in this breed. Are there a few others that in amongst the breed that have made their mark, or is it just generally different sheep for different people? Probably different sheep for different people. You know, there, there might be there's some that maybe have stood out up in the north here where we're crossing in Blackies, and it's maybe slightly different than the south crossing in Swales. So, yes, I think it's. I mean, even you know, when we talk about syndicates getting together, you quite often see, you know, a top bought by two or three people. He might he might really click with one flock's females and doesn't do quite so well with the other ones. You know, and um, but that's that's just the the makeup of the genetic footprint of everybody's flocks being 
slightly different yeah. and um, how, how they all just knit together, I don't know. James, you've been involved in the society, of course, for a long time. I've been on council. I've been on the council since it was um, set up. It was changed from basically committee to the council. I think that was in the early 1990s, um, and I've served on the Northeast Region and the National Council since since then. And I did do a spell as uh, I was actually Northeast Chairman during foot and mouth time, which uh, was quite difficult oh. trying to coordinate how we were going to work sales or potential sales. Sure, sure. And Derek, you too have been involved heavily with the society. Same as James, chairman of the Scottish region. I've uh, been on council okay. for quite a long time. Not as long as James, but... Uh, <laughs> um, and you chaps being involved in the society, which side of the breed would be more vibrant these days? Would that be a fair question? Is there, is there what, a lean towards one side or the other, or are we 50-50 down the middle? I think we're all one breed and every, everyone works together. You know, the council has a good cross-section of traditional-type breeders and crossing-type breeders. And we all reach amicable decisions and what have you within council, I would say. And numbers-wise numbers wise within the breed, sheep-wise? I think there's probably slightly more crossing-type sheep. Maybe, would you say, 60% to 40%? Not something you could actually split out on a on a database, but if you look at the numbers that are sold, you're probably a bit right, James. I would think. Okay. Not meant to be a loaded question. It was just sort of a question that I know our our listeners out with the breed would be looking at. And back, I suppose if you if you linked it back into the mule numbers, the North England mule is the most numerous sheep in the UK. Is it? Uh, you know, twelve million. Mm-hmm. And then I think if you look at you know Cheviots. And Welsh mules, I'm guessing they're maybe about added together, maybe about another five million. So you know, it's heavily weighted in favour of the North England mule. Sure. Sure. Uh, so that I, I'm, it's hard to actually put a figure on it, but it, it possibly indicates it might be nearer to seventy thirty. Okay. Okay, that makes sense when when we're all out to cross to, to breed those mules, and yeah, that is not only the most numerous. That probably makes up close under half of the population of the sheep in the country. And uh, I mentioned uh, at the beginning of this piece there that you guys have got a, a birth celebratory birthday this year. Congratulations! And uh, what plans are there there so our listeners can maybe join in? Are you going to have a few parties and shindigs and maybe a, a bit of a bit of a soirée at the Highland Show or something? Well, we'll always have a party at the Highland Show. <laughs> yes. It um, it'd be good to see you there this year, Andy. If you if you're at the Highland Show, I will. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to be. Yeah, five o'clock on the Friday night. Yeah. Okay. I think they're, they're still making other plans. They're looking to try and maybe have something in the back end, but it's very difficult. It's still in certain times. Sure. You know, actually, I'm sitting. I've got COVID right here now. Oh, tested positive. So, yeah. You know, we still don't really. We're not totally out of the weeds, really. And I, I think it. It's maybe quite difficult to plan these things. Just you don't want to go health and leather on a big event, and it could. Sure. Well, may not happen. I'm sorry to drag you from your bed there with COVID, and especially if you're in the middle of lambing, that's no fun having that. Just shows, as you said, that we're not. No, I managed to get the lambing finished before I got yeah, it. <laughs> Um, and, and hearing what you're saying, of course, it's great to see that we will have shows back this year, and, and we're, we're not guaranteed them as yet. But hopefully, we'll have uh, we'll all get out for a, for a, to see some normality back in the UK um, with regards to the, certainly the main shows and a lot of other shows now all coming on on board. And the Yorkshire show, of course, will be a big a big show for you guys as well, I guess. And uh, um, 
I better let you both get back to your lamina. I've really appreciated uh, hearing a history of this breed um, and hearing what a phenomenal breed they are. And as you said, your know, diversity is the strength, but uh, this this hybrid vigor, it's it's pretty obvious when you look at a sheep that it's by a blue lester. There's, there's, you, you can run, but you can't hide, can you? Definitely, yes. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, uh, James, uh, for your time. I'll get, let you get back to yeah. finish lambing your blues, but let you get back to lambing your, your other ones. Yeah, thanks very much. Uh, enjoy doing it, and 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 Derek, the same, the same to you. You coming into lambing now? Thanks very much for your time. No, thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Yeah. Well, thank you for listening to this week's Top Lines and Tales podcast. As always, we'd like to kindly thank our sponsors, Harbro, for their continued support. And they are, of course, manufacturers and suppliers of quality livestock nutrition and nutritional advice. Visit their webpage or see them on Facebook and social media for other information. And whilst on the subject of Facebook, why not visit our Top Lines and Tales Facebook page where you should find photographs and other information about this podcast and other podcasts previously. <laughs>